I want to thank my sponsor, Viva. Viva, thank you so much for making this show possible. Viva is here to change the game. They have electronic regulatory documents for sites for free with no commitment, no contract. I just signed up my site, Yuma Clinical Trials. No contract needed, nothing signed. They they just approve your email address and that's it. You're up and running with an electronic regulatory system, which is a great way if you haven't gotten into electronic anything yet. You need to consider it. It's it's free. Over 450 sponsors are using Viva for their back-end stuff. Electronic signatures here, electronic uh, delegation of authorities log, all for free. Viva is going to keep giving sites free stuff because they're very site-centric. They, they know that if they help empower the sites, even more sponsors are going to use their paid products on their end. They are the sponsors after all, so they pay for things. And they understand that making sites take control of their electronic systems is a huge first step. It's a huge commitment for sites, even for something that's free. And they're here to make it easy, and they're playing the long game. And anyways, go check it out underneath the video or the show notes below. Viva Site Vault. Thank you, Viva. Hey, Guru Nation. Welcome back to another episode. I'm here back with a, with a return. Uh, Senior Director, Mount Sinai Health System, Michelle Cohen. Michelle and I have been... Michelle's been on the show so many times. It's probably... We've been interacting since like 2018, 2017. I know Michelle was like really early, early adopter of using eSource, eReg. She's always looking for latest tech tools to increase efficiency at the site. I actually visited her site um, at Mount Sinai there in Manhattan. It's an interesting setup. Um I was amazed like you guys have, and I don't know how many staff you have now, but you had like this central place where all the coordinators would work, you know, with cubicles, but then you'd have all these exam rooms surrounding it. And at the time, uh, to me, that was like strange because I'm used to dealing with smaller sites, but now that we're integrated in a bigger medical practice, we almost have the similar setup without the cubicles. We just have our own room, but then we have all these exam rooms all around us. So we kind of have like the model you have and we're running out of space just like you were back then. I remember lab kits stacked to the ceiling. You're in Manhattan real estates. Not, it doesn't come easy. Uh, and we're kind of in the same boat. Um, so how's everything? Hi, thanks for having me back. Um, things are good. Uh, you know, I you know I joke around that we're in the senior our senior year of COVID, so things have kind of calmed down and stabilized per se. I'm no longer running <laughs> COVID studies, and it's nice back to doing real research and um, being able to address you know all the various disease states that we do research on and have a full team that's functioning and back on site back on site so it took you guys this long to actually get back on site we've actually you know i right before covid hit i was already modeling um 
what does it mean to be hybrid and how can we make that functional for our teams and which teams that could actually apply to. Um, our regulatory team and our finance team and even our uh, clinical operations teams, they, could, they have the ability to really be in a remote work situation and come to campus every now and then or, you know, once a week, you know, with some sort of cadence or frequency once staff have really been trained and understand their roles and responsibilities and are, um, you know, accountable. And then, you know, our coordinators were out of space in many ways. So we're trying to figure out, you know, models that work for coordinators, you know, to be they, they have the advantage of being like in a remote work situation once or twice a month. But, you know, on a rotating basis with desks and, and mm. schedules to accommodate. But really, you know, patients are on site and recruitment and interaction with clinicians are on site and we really need staff on site to optimize our recruitment. Yeah. I mean, space is the issue. Like even for me too, I'm here in Yuma, Arizona and it's definitely not Manhattan in terms of real estate, but we are integrated in a private practice and I actually can't hire another coordinator because of space. Like uh, the PI told us in about a year, we'll have another site where he's expanding it. So we'll be able to have like two sites, but like sometimes just you're limited, not by the study opportunities or even by budget. It's just by space. Resource allocation. It's mm -hmm. about, it is about space. It is about staff and it is about equipment. And how, how do you navigate? So how many coordinators or how many employees report to you at the present moment 46 46 wow yeah there's definitely not enough space for all of them to be there and they're all you're in that manhattan place i visited right yeah that's one of the locations i also have staff at 102nd street you know at another building and further uptown on 106th street and on 100th street and you know Every, every nook and cranny we could get ourselves into. And I'm currently working with uh, department leadership on potentially expanding to our other campuses to be able to do a hub and spoke model for research across mm. the different places. Would that require, do you think that would require a PI at each of those locations or you can do a central PI and manage the studies that way? That's a good question. We're going to, I think it's going to be <laughs> I, I think we'll have PIs that are, you know, primarily in those locations. I think we're going to have some PIs that wind up going over there because we'll, we'll run some sort of office hours so they can, you know, have some quiet time in between seeing patients. And I think we may also engage in maybe some um, mid-level mid providers, some APPs or nurse practitioners to see the patient visits. Yeah, those mid-level providers definitely come in handy uh, <laughs> when you're expanding and growing. One of my, my business partners, a nurse practitioner, and he actually does a lot of the heavy lifting from a clinician standpoint when it comes to overseeing the studies and the patients. Um, so yeah, that like I guess you needed tech. It makes sense why you're an early adopter of tech systems. I mean. That's the only way to manage the staff you have, <laughs> the way I see it. 
Yeah, I like to learn new systems and, and learn new things and to kind of keep a growing edge um, on my knowledge and operations and what we can do to improve, you know, our working opportunities. Um, we moved to Teams exclusively for some documents, you know, as kind of like a playground situation and standardizing that in terms of uh, training documents for, for staff and, you know, for each one of the studies to standardize how we are storing items. And then we also have any regulatory platform. We're, you know, partnered with Florence Healthcare and we've been using EREG and that really saved us over the pandemic. And, you know, mm -hmm. please report that also um, very successful recent FDA audit with utilizing that platform. And it was very, very, informative and enlightening to see how uh, advantageous that is that we don't no longer would have like 15 regulatory binders <laughs> when you're walking into an audit. Um, so how did that work? If, I mean, you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so first of all, the FDA auditor couldn't reach us. So basically he came unannounced. He had been trying to reach us for about a week. We were prepared, you know, in the sense that we were identified by the sponsor in thinking that we would be audited as being a highest enroller for a trial. And we 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 had pre-prepared all of the studies. There were there were three studies in this uh, program that we were audited for. And um, you know, we basically set up a role inside our uh, eBinder system for the auditor. We turned it on at every every morning when he arrived at the site and turned it off at the end of the day every day. This auditor was not interested in having one iota of paper. Didn't want to, you know, so like out came my copy, my copy stamp when like he arrived. And then he was like, I would like everything on a flash drive. <laughs> so that was a, you know, re wow. re and so, you know, we had to make sure we had an encrypted flash drive and put everything on there. And then we used, um, we we set up a war room and set up a scribe and set up minutes for every single day and, you know, made a folder of every day of whatever documents that he was asking to collect and then had a debrief at the end of every day with the sponsor to let them know how progress was going. So why did you have to give him flash drives if you guys are on eSource and eReg? He did not he accept access? Copy. No, he asked for hard copies of um, DOA, training logs, uh, monitoring letters. He wanted certain documents uh, for each one of the studies, which was interesting to me. Are you guys on electronic DOA? Like everything's signed digitally or do you still have yes. it? Yep, everything's electronic, but he wanted a, his, he did not want anything copied. He wanted everything in an electronic format. That's strange. Do you have to comply? I'm just curious. Like, That's a great question. <laughs> I would say never want to not comply with yeah. an audit. It seems strange because if they, if I'm putting myself in your shoes, if he came to our site and asked for that, I would say, well, we have SOPs, everything's done digitally. Why? We don't even have these encrypted flash drives. What? Every the these systems are designed for auditors, monitors to access them remotely. Right, right. I believe he he's not. I 
from what I understand, FDA auditors can view files, but they're probably not allowed to download documents. Even though I, I would see. have Excel and whatnot, because it would put a digital stamp on there. I see. That's good to know, just in case in the future. So that would be strange. I think if I wasn't prepared for that request, I wouldn't be able to comply even if I wanted to. Um, I luckily had an extra flash drive in my drawer that day. So, but encrypted you know. and all that. How do you know? I mean, that's that's. I had my IT uh, director for my department <laughs> with that, you know, right wow. away. Wow. Wow. I guess it's a minor thing, but this is what we geek out about in our space. Um, okay. So that you had a war room. Who was in the war room with you guys? Um, we, I had, uh, I'm going to, my regulatory manager, the coordinator manager for that group, a scribe, which is somebody from, you know, on the team who was literally just there to take notes. We rotated that out. Um, Every couple of days, I thought it was a great experience for the coordinators to have an understanding of what what questions came up through the audit, um, what what learning takeaways could be, you know, gleaned from the situation. And myself, it was just us, and we pulled in the PI when we needed to, and pulled in the sponsor when we needed to. The other thing that was also interesting is that the sponsor said, "Our TMF is locked. You may not ask us for any documents." Wow. So, so much for being helpful. Yeah. I mean, we, we had everything. We were able to locate like the one or two documents of five years of data that we didn't have. What was interesting is that this, the trial itself started before we had an e-reg system. So it was paper-based. Um, so that, you know, it definitely, you, you can notice those things when, when you're in the system. So we had to let them know that we transitioned during the project into mm. an elect electronic system. Were um, you guys a high enroller for that study or? Yes. Highest. Okay. I see. Worldwide. That seems to be correlated with audits is high enrolling. So if you guys try to avoid one. I know. Don't be a high enroller. I've never been in a, like, um. I'm not afraid of FD audits, but why, you know, you just said it was two weeks. I mean, why put yourself in that situation if you know it's going to be like, it's going to take away resources from seeing patients or doing studies. So I've, I've never been one to want to be a high enroller. I'm always okay being like above average, but not too much. Yeah. It was interesting because the FDA audited six sites for the study. Hmm. We were the last. You were the last. Yeah. What is the, I guess, how does that work in the war room? Were you, were you in there like all day? Was it like hour by hour he would walk in or just email you things? Or like, how does that interaction work on an hour by hour basis? Well, we every every morning the manager she ran point for the project, you know, for the whole audit. I was really there just for support. Um, when meet the auditor outside, escort them up to the room, give them a couple minutes to kind of get their laptops and everything organized, and then uh, meet with all of us to tell us what documents that they would be reviewing in that day, which subject numbers that they would be reviewing. 
And then we would pull anything that needed to get pulled for review. I see. So we had so, another set up with all of our binders because those were still on paper. I see. So it's not like an hour by hour thing. It's like in the morning and then. It was like in the morning for lunch. And then, you know, at about three o'clock, there was a touchdown. Okay. And when he arrived, because you were not able to prepare. So when he arrived, did he say specifically, I'm here for this study? Or did he say, I'm here for this study and possibly look at other studies? He said I was here for, you know, study A, study B, study C. Okay. And I ident identified all of those. You so know. you knew at least what studies he was going to look at. Yes. Well, the sponsor thought we were, you know, we had thought we were only going to get audited for the study that was still open to enrollment. But, it, you know, I see. So it was open, three... open, like it was still active, but we were the... indeed you know, audited for all three. All three, same sponsor, same IP, I'm guessing. Same IP, same patients. Okay. You know, went from one study to the next for two of those protocols. Were you ever worried that, hey, okay, he said he's only here for these three studies, but in theory, he could ask for anything? Like, were you staff prepared for that or? I guess you always have to be. <laughs> you know, at the end of the audit, he did inform us that this was the longest audit he had ever conducted. Wow. So I'm sure he was also eager to kind of get out. <laughs> Overall, was pleasant, or did he have recommended? I don't know how much detail you can give, but any um, big issues or very pleasant. I'll give you my like my two cents takeaways from some of this because it was like a learning opportunity. I always feel mm -hmm. he was very pleasant. I do feel like uh, the FDA auditors have their own nuance of what they're going to look at and you know what they're going to focus on. Um, this this uh, auditor looked at every single monitoring letter to make sure it matched against the monitoring log and that every single one of them was filed. I was a little shocked by that. I see. So in a way, by doing that, he's auditing the CRO and the CRAs to make sure yeah. that they're documenting properly as well. Yes. Um, so that was interesting. Um, he He was very, you know, did about 50% source doc verification for the patients that were enrolled, wanted to have a clear understanding, you know, for any subjective measures that were being collected to how that information was being collected and to verify he had an understanding clinically of what was going on and that, you know, the staff explaining that could have an understanding. Um, the other takeaway was, you know, patient had a, a late visit. I don't know, they had a medical emergency where they couldn't come on site. So it was a protocol deviation, but right in there in the source document was the, you know, notice from the sponsor that they allowed that. And, you know, it told the story and having the documentation is very important. I'm going to splice that part out for my coordinators to hear because this is exactly the case, you know, especially when you're talking about years later. But even when you're talking like six months later, if you guys get busy and you start having queries and database lock and you go back to try to answer your queries, you go back to your source and you don't understand what happened. You have to guess. It's not a good thing. You need to tell the story of every visit 
every visit has its own nuances and intricacies. So you guys, you guys were documenting properly, and it made for a relatively smooth audit. Yeah, the other takeaway is, um, you know how there are some laboratories that put clinically significant and not clinically significant in the little marking spots? Mm -hmm. Not all labs came out that way. And even though that the PI had signed at the bottom, there was there was a, a notation made by the auditor that there was not a you know clinically significant, not clinically significant marking on that exact lab because the lines were not made by the by the central lab. So I see. really And important. it was out of range or was it within range? They were out of range and Okay. the line there. You know, and, you know, my really, you know, my very, very seasoned staff know to make those lines and tell, you know, and really point the clinical staff to like sign off on that lab report in every single spot. But, you know, this other staff person didn't do that and it got dinged. And, it, you know, it's very interesting that that was like the one item that was the take home message from our entire audit. Makes sense. Labs make mistakes. Was it a central lab or a local lab? It was central. Central lab. So the sponsor appointed lab. So I guess that's a message for all the sites. Like don't rely on those boxes from the central labs. And like you said, you got to pay attention. If you notice that those boxes are missing and you're a CRC, you can put them, put the boxes in there and have your PI check yes or no. Yeah. And we didn't need the PI as much as I thought because partially I had such a seasoned manager running point on the audit, right? They they knew every single patient, knew the clinical course of the patient, could understand what from an SAE perspective. But if if that person was not in place, the PI wouldn't have had would have had to be present a lot more. So was that a deviation then that he f discovered or um the 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 lab the thing the lab issue Mhm mm no because there was you know because the pi had signed at the bottom of the form acknowledging that they had seen that mm. you know it was just not assessed it was just like a minor issue not a deviation it, it was a minor issue and one more insider baseball question um you said the auditor was doing source data verification so how do you give him edc access We did not. He has, um, he, he had it at, you know, this was a study that was, you know, being submitted to the FDA for approval. And he had it, he had information from what they called the center and he had um, diary data. He had EDC data. And so if he had a question, he was in his system and we would show him how to find things. Ah, interesting. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense that the sponsor would send that info to the FDA. And so he's, that makes sense to me. Uh, okay, switching gears. So you guys made it out okay and flying colors. Flying colors, always a learning experience. It's my fourth FDA audit, and I'm happy to move on. Wow. And two weeks is a long time. Usually it's like a day or two. Yeah, no kidding. And it was not a for cause. It was just a, you're a high enroller. <laughs> This was an important study. Therefore, we're going to audit. Correct, Mm. correct.
back to managing staff. So you were saying recently you've noticed, and this is March 2023 for those watching in the future, you've noticed the slowdown in study activity to some extent. I have not. So I'm curious to get your take on whether your situation is unique or you're just seeing things before I am. <laughs> Good question. I'm not sure. I'm not, I'm really not sure what the slowdown, I don't know if it's, we took on less studies three years ago. So the doubt, like we have less trials in our portfolio today because of that, because we had a lot of projects that closed last year. Um, is pharma contracting at all in terms of what they're doing? Good question. I've had a couple of trials get pulled in phase three after we've been, you know, greenlit and SIV'd and, you know, screening um, for funding issues. I don't have those specifics, I'm not privy to that, but, uh, you know, that's a little worrisome. Um, and so I always say under promise, over deliver, make the best of this, you know, every trial that we do have. Mm hmm. I, I mean, managing the site uh, over the years, you've inevitably seen the roller coaster of, you know, busy time periods, little lighter time periods. How do you delegate and manage re human resources when it comes to the times where there's maybe not as much going on as you would like, and maybe you're actually a little overstaffed at those times. How do you, how do you delegate and what do you have your staff do during those times? Um, so the overstaffing situation is obviously the best case scenario, in my opinion. Um, we always have a cadre of uh, coordinators who are interested in going to medical school. So we know that people will be leaving. So having people trained up is really really important and to have an overlap even is is ideal because you don't want to wait three months before somebody is trained to delay recruitment for that time period. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, it, it delays everything for those projects. In terms of human resources, um, really trying to uh, ensure that regulatory documents are up to date, that training is up to date for those staff members, um, that they're filing all the things that they can, what additional recruitment uh, processes can we put in place for programs that are having a harder time? And also can staff support each other, like creating that network within our divisions to ensure that there's a real team approach, you know, and trying to remember at the end of the day, there's a patient there and they don't want to be in that clinic any longer than they have to. So if we could help get them out of that clinic, you know, by shave off 20 or 30 minutes because somebody's picking up IP or, you know, helping to, you know, escort them while coordinators seeing another patient, it's about the team. Yeah, I guess that's um, it's always good to have sort of a, a farm system where you're developing the skill set needed for when inevitably those busy times come back because then you've got the problem of staff burnout, right? Which is a very real thing in our industry. Um, how do you manage, how do you proactively manage staff burnout? I think, you know, 
it doesn't matter how you hire these staff once they get here it's how they they are managing and you know communication if you you don't know staff are burned out unless the staff are communicating that to their managers i encourage that my managers meet with their staff um, on a weekly basis or a bi-weekly basis once they get to that point and there's a certain cadence but having private meetings is a little bit different than you know the stop in the hallway hey how you doing Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like different things come out during a private meeting where, you know, there could really be like, I'm struggling with my investigator, you know, they, I can't track them down or mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm working 10 hour days and I don't know how to adjust my schedule. How can you help me? Because I'm feeling some burnout. Um, I, I think communicating with your manager is the first step into like taking a deep dive and a deep look to find out how you know, that could be looked at and how it could be addressed. And I think coordinators, you know, I need staff need to set boundaries, you know, in general, you know, it's, uh, I know I, I say that and it's a, it's kind of laughable because I also tend to work, you know, many hours, you know, especially when I'm remote, I tend to work longer hours and it's, it's important. There are other things outside of my work world that our priority in my life. And I want to make sure that those things, you know, my family and, you know, all of my hobbies and the other things that make me a better leader continue to happen. How do you, how do you ascertain, uh, let's say someone's, um, you have managers. So you, do you ever go one-on-one with a coordinator or do you mainly go one-on-one with the managers? Mostly I go one-on-one with the managers. If there's a problem that needs to be addressed or, you know, my manager feels like they just need some extra support, I am happy to go, you know, meet directly with the coordinators, but I do not generally like skip reporting. I think that's up for bad triangulation. Um, Yes. There's a lot of potential pitfalls with that. Yes. So if I meet with a coordinator, there's definitely always a manager there. Um, you know, as a, as a group meeting. Um, and, you know, I, people are welcome to communicate with me, you know, like in a drop in, like, do you need something? But I don't want specific problems to be, you know, mm. the manager being involved, but, you know, I, I handle things from time to time, you know, if there's a problem with, I don't know, radiology, right? Like in getting getting the radiologist to read the scans in the right manner, right? Like that's a process problem, right? It's it's an institutional process problem. So we have to make sure that we get the right people involved to make sure that um, the reading comes out for what we need for that project. It makes sense that if you ever were to meet with a coordinator, that the manager's there because I could see even at a smaller site how if you have that structure in place, the potential for jumping chain of command, which you worked hard to instill, is there. And, you know, with my new site, I'm just thinking for myself here, if I eventually want to get to the point where we have site directors, I'm not sure how I would handle it. Because to some on some level, you want to make sure the coordinator is comfortable enough to talk to you with the manager not there but of course it's slippery slope 
And I, whenever I talk to someone in your situation who is in charge of a lot more staff than I probably will ever be, I ask these kind of questions mainly for myself because I want to know how to how to do it when I get to that point. I have um, last year I did a I did a you know a feasibility assessment of like how they're doing. I wanted to hear about what they wanted to learn about and what you know they see room for improvement and if they felt like they were being underutilized. I wanted to kind of hear. Um, I think using feedback forms and you know. Uh, check-ins in a way that adds an additional layer. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I do think that uh, the tone of the office gets set by the staff who are there, right? Yeah. Like if the staff are positive and upbeat and engaging, then that's going to set the tone for the office. Uh, so since, since you mainly do your one-on-ones with your managers, how do you, how do you, how do you decide, you know, if let's say somebody's coming in and says, Hey, you know what, Michelle, I'm, I'm really burnt out right now. How do you decide whether, okay, well, you might be burnt out, but this is actually what we require, not necessarily for you to be burnt out, but you're not really doing anything that we would expect you're not able to handle, you know, because not everyone works at the same level. Not everyone's as efficient. So how, how do you get involved when someone says, hey, you know what, I'm burnt out? How do you judge whether it's legit or whether they're just complaining? I think there's a couple things. There's like the feels of what's going on, right? Like the assessment by the manager. There's the, are you recruiting into your studies? Mm -hmm. um, like the hard recruitment numbers, right? Um, it's the looking at the monitoring letters and seeing what's the follow-up at the, you know, in terms of resolution for those and like a QA process for those letters to see. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's just, it's never going to be fair. As, as hard as you try, or at least for me, I try to make things fair for my CRCs. We don't have managers yet. I'm the manager. So I try to make everything fair. Like even if I distribute workload, I think evenly, inevitably, someone's going to get a harder study or a study that we're actually busier on because the patients are there. Correct. It's never fair. Like, it's just really tough to be able to navigate this, even with a small staff. Yeah, I mean, I use a, I try to use an acuity score also to like, to figure out how complex is this trial? How many patients are being enrolled? How much time is taking up to do these visits? You know, does anybody plan for the, the three hours you're on hold with IT because some ePro diary doesn't work? No, and there's nowhere that that's getting captured and that's just lost revenue. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, but it, you know, at, at the end of the day, People can't compare each other, you know, unless they're working on the exact same study and no two people should be working on the exact same trial portfolio because every trial is going to have its own nuance, its own requirements. Yep. Um, you know, the investigators are different, too, in terms of what they need. Yeah. Um, and the personalities of the staff. There are going to be some staff members who can handle more and there are some that are just not, you know 
they're not as um, capable of handling that many, that level of details, despite their intelligence. This is not an intelligence issue. This is like really being able to run point on so many different moving pieces and keeping that data in line. I see. Yeah. I mean, that brings up a good point. Intelligence. I feel like the default answer to this question is, yeah, of course, more intelligence is always better. But I feel like in, in the work we do, there's probably a minimal level. And anything above a certain level, which most people hit if you hire them, everything above that, it's kind of diminishing returns. Like, have have you noticed as far as capabilities of staff that there's any correlation between higher intelligence and more output? No. <laughs> Me either. <laughs> Matter of fact, sometimes it works against them because they know they're smart. They know they're smarter than the average coworker and they feel like they can get away or there's even a sense of entitlement there. Um, that's just interesting stuff I think about randomly. I think, you know, again, it goes back to know your protocol, know the ins and outs of that protocol, <laughs> know the nuance of your investigator and, you know, you be your best you, right? Like, yeah. don't compare yourself to some other study coordinator, like be the best staff member that you can be on that team. What about losing staff to either competitors or you know, vertically losing them to a CRO or a sponsor. Uh, yeah. It's an issue all of us face as site directors. I really try to let staff understand that we have a, you know, a development pathway for them and, you know, but it's not going to happen in three months and it's not going <laughs> to six months. And, you know, uh, it takes, I mean, I was a coordinator for years before I became a manager, right? To have the mm -hmm. breadth of knowledge and background and understanding for how things could get done. And I know it's, I know it's different today. I know the expectations are different, but you're not going to get to be a senior coordinator without having, you know, hitting some benchmarks of what that means. Um, <laughs> do I think everybody can get there? Yes, but they, they have to, you have to know how to open studies. You know how you have to know how to close studies. You have to know how to run that study so autonomously that no, like the only questions you should be asking as a new staff member is, where is the facility location? <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, we can say that stuff, but it won't stop people from testing the waters. No, it, and you know we both know that. Mastering your skill set at the site level is probably the best, and the longer you can stay at the site level, the better it is. But those greener pastures keep calling, and they call they you know the the call gets stronger and louder. So it's inevitable you're going to lose certain people because they want to maybe level up their career quickly. But it could also be potential pitfalls because you may not you may think it's better over there until you actually go there. That and people also, you know, are you really looking at the whole package? You know, people, you know, are getting contract work and they don't realize that they have to pay out of pocket now for their health care expenses and for other things. Right. Oops. Like, oops. <laughs> right. Like, there's 
overhead at, you know, for salaries at our institution, it's, it's 30% on top of what you're getting paid that goes towards your benefits. And nobody's calculating that in when they're, you know, getting their, their offer letters to be like, oh, it's really 30% more. Not um, to mention the taxes that most self-employed don't pay their quarterly taxes like they're supposed to. You know, if they have the employee mentality, like at the end of the year, so no one's withholding taxes. Great. I spend it all because in Manhattan, it's easy to do. Right. So, if you think, <laughs> and, you know, you've been at, you know, after you've been at Mount Sinai for three years, you're vested, right? You're vested and you will get an automatic uh, match on your retirement. It's mm. like what, you know, you got to calculate those things. Have those things with this newer generation, though, or even millennials, has that actually worked as far as retaining? Just anecdotally, I mean, you don't have to speak for the institution, but what you've seen, like, do those retention tools actually work? The traditional IRA or 401k and then um, the I don't benefits. Think that, I don't think that they're, they, they don't think of these things when they're making those <laughs> right you know it's only after the fact when I you know it's like sometimes meeting with new staff you know and like reminding them at the beginning like you know this is like all the great things about you know being a part of an institution mm -hmm. yeah so many challenges especially at the larger scale the thing I admire about Mount Sinai is that yes you guys are a large hospital-based system which historically has not been very good for the industry uh as far as efficiency and but you guys operate somehow as a, like a smaller site within a bigger system it's one of the few that actually does that well i think thank you i try i try to be as efficient as possible i mean i really have sat in every single seat you know from research assistant all the way up and i i understand the challenges in all of those different positions and you know um at the end of the day i just want to get the research done and want to make sure that we have the ability to give the option for care as a clinical trial to patients yeah because you're you're a senior director right so i'm assuming there's within the mount sinai health system several other senior director are you the only the only one oh um cancer has a big okay. program um and then there are other research program directors within the institution as well so there's probably a handful of people like in your role within the system yes mm. yeah do you guys ever interact like how, how you guys are doing or like are they okay. autonomous like do they have to use red cap or do they have to do what you do or is they can there's operate silos in terms of how research happens, but the processes that are institutional, there's a lot of cross uh, communication between those locations. So I, I'm on lots of meetings with those other folks. I see. So you have a degree of freedom within your department, but there are certain things within the framework of the institution that you have to adhere to. Yes. Okay. Makes sense. I mean, I think that's how, why it works. I haven't, you know, you hear complaints from, People now that we have the CRC CRA Academy, they've been mature for like five years or more now. You hear stories from students, hey, I worked here. We've had many of our interns work for you, by the way, um, at CRA and CRC. 
we and they've they've jumped around right they go different places and i never hear negative things about your your site whereas with others i'm not gonna name any names but similar health systems that they can't say the same That's good to hear, but also like it's, you know, I'm just going to, this past week I had a new employee that, that came from another part of the hospital, but they were considered a vendor, right? And it took almost two weeks to get their email dealt with. Now, you know, it's not for lack of trying. We're a big institution with lots of bureaucracy. And if you put the right workflows in place, things will happen. But it can't be put this in today and expect for it to be dealt with tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And planning, operational planning. does mount sinai operate the same as uh like let's say i mean i'm i don't know too many new york academic medical centers but let's say like a ucla or uc berkeley or ucsf where they are huge in the sense of like creating the ip inventing the ip licensing out to industry like those those universities have departments specifically for what to do when you when a, when one of your scientists invents ip patents it and then licensing it out that's a, like a huge revenue stream for these universities does mount sinai operate in that same kind of way Yeah, there's a whole department for that. And I only really get involved with them for investigator um, initiated studies where iits we're writing the protocol, right? If we're writing the protocol, then that's when that team becomes involved. i see and then the your staff also write pro like medical writers and all that on your team or No medical writers, you know, I will often, you know, I, we're only... really starting to do some IITs and, and starting to flush that out in terms of program with a clinical operations team. Um, so I have like, you know, I have like two, two or three people who are like working on that team to kind of, to do that. A lot of the writing comes from the physicians and then like the operations input, you know, from myself or a research manager for whatever project it is. Sounds like enough to keep you personally busy and engaged and always dealing with something new just because you have a wide variety of different things you're responsible for. I someone I have a I have a friend who said something to me recently and she said to always be dealing with emergencies and firefighting and strategy at the same time that's two jobs. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. Not to mention nurturing employees and Recruiting employee, I mean, more than two jobs. That's you're also like HR to some extent. To some extent, but you know, that, that tends to wax and wane with what's going on with the pulse of the office and, and how things are happening and how much expansion is needed and how many projects we have. Right. So, you Yeah. know. If somebody, I guess, call to action. First of all, everybody needs to go follow Michelle. Her LinkedIn. LinkedIn Link is underneath this video and in the show notes if you're listening. You've been really good, like for our tri-state area students um, from the CRA Academy, CRC Academy. You've even hired a few. Um, but internship, what are your thoughts on interns? And what do you look for in an intern? How should an intern not approach you? How should they approach you? Just give some advice for people watching. Um, there, you know, I'm pleased to report that internships, you know, are kind of back and people could be on site again and really be able to learn. I think 
an internship is an amazing opportunity to kind of see what the day to day looks like. Mm -hmm. I have hired, um, you know, I've had I've had volunteers, you know, who are college students who've come to volunteer in our office, and then we've hired them when they graduate. Um, you know, I've had, you know, volunteers that have turned into like part-time employees that we've then turned into full-time employees. And we've had interns um, from you and from a couple other sources. I think it's a great, it's, it's great because we need to make sure that we keep the pipeline of staff in this world. I mean, it's only going to be more research and we need to make sure we have people who are educated and trained. It's a farm system. I like baseball, so I use baseball analogies a lot, but it's like minor leagues. You know, when your third baseman gets injured, it's nice to be able to call down to the farm and say, hey, bring this guy up, you know, bring bring him up to the big leagues. In a way, I think all sites need to do that, whether small, small or large. But shout out to you, Michelle. You've been open to interns and a lot of people in your position are not. Uh, they only hire when they need to, and that's when they're stressing out about staffing, but you understand the importance of developing talent in-house and, hey, if some of them decide to leave later, that's fine. What can you do? You're not going to bat a thousand, but... Correct. I mean, <laughs> I have, I, I had somebody who came from CRA Academy who was in a, in a research coordinator position, had a change of um, their status in terms of what they needed to do and you know, came and communicated what the needs were. And we were able to find another position that fits within, you know, their, their skill set and their scope and are very happy ah, within position. the system, within the system and within our team. Mm, I want to talk to you off air about who that is. Cause I'm curious. I like to follow up with all our former students, but CRA in particular, we've been doing this now CRA. We've been doing since 2016, so that's seven years now. CRC Academy is only four years old. But it's interesting to see, like, follow up with all the graduates and see where they're at. But big shout out to you, Michelle, for always believing in the interns or just believing in the concept. I'm sure not everyone's worked out that we've sent your way. And actually, what do you do? Like, if someone doesn't work out, <laughs> what we, you know, I think it was like literally right before COVID that we were fielding a whole like three interns and it just kind of like fizzled, obviously, when mm. uh, pandemic hit. Um, you know, there's a process. You need to be vetted as if you were almost an employee to go through that internship process and you need to go through all of the different steps. You know, there's, you know, background checks, you know, drug testing, All you have to go through all of the process. Mm -hmm. So. You know, it's like following up and making sure that, you know, every box is checked. It's like making sure that 1572 is filled out properly. What's the worst thing an intern can do, in your opinion? Not follow up, not communicate. If there's a problem or a challenge or they feel like they want to learn something else, like communicate what that is. Because, you know, not everything is glamorous in clinical research. There's the mundane and, you know, that could be literally, you know, getting that lab kit to that coordinator, but that's really important. Right. And understanding the why of what you're doing. Mm. Things like dry ice. Do you guys have dry ice in house or how do you get dry ice? We do, but sometimes it runs out. So you have to go to another place to go get go it. Go to right? Fry's or where do you guys go out there to get dry ice in Manhattan? You can find dry ice. No, in the, in the institution. Right. Uh, so like, okay. but that's 
be a couple blocks away, right? And you have to like go hunt it down. I imagine you have like ready ice or some vendor able to deliver. Yeah, we have we have set <laughs> delivery twice a week, but sometimes they don't deliver until in the afternoon and you have a patient in the morning. So what do you do? And you know, I have like no idea. In Manhattan, I would be, I mean, we have the issue with, let's make sure we get the labs to FedEx before five, but we're, we're here in Yuma and it's really easy. FedEx is like five minute drive from us, rarely busy back in LA. Um, you would hit traffic. Like if you leave the site at three 30, you may not get to the FedEx by five. What do you do? Cause you missed the cutoff time for when they're going to come deliver. So what are you going to do now? So how, how does that work in Manhattan? Um, One of the first things I did on site was speaking with uh, senior leadership at the institution and coordinating to get a pickup in the mailroom for labs every single day. That was like one of my first operational efficiencies. I'm like, That's why are five coordinators calling FedEx for pickups when we could do this differently? So just have one place, everyone in your department, you have a lab, put your labs there, make sure they're done before three, I'm guessing, or two, maybe. Four. 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 Yeah, they got to get to JFK before what's happened. That's not yeah. easy to do. Wow. Yeah. A lot of complexity in this industry, but thank you so much, Michelle, for coming on. Oh, any tech that you're particularly interested in? That's new, maybe that. Uh... So I just started using Smartsheet. I like to see dashboards and metrics and information that got implemented in June of this past year. And I just was in a meeting where I saw this thing called Miro. I don't have you heard of this? No, I haven't heard of Smartsheet or Miro. Smartsheet is kind of like Excel on steroids. But hmm. I, what I like is my motto for 23 is work smarter, not harder. Um, should be a motto for every year but yeah <laughs> um and automatic notifications right like i just you know i just did a system improvement and like it's time to do like an annual like uh i have to do a 98 a 90 day performance appraisal on somebody so now the system notifies me that that 90 days is up right like so uh. i like automatic notifications irb approval comes it sends a notification to the study coordinator the manager the regulatory the finance team off it goes i see um, so automating doing... tasks for yourself are you excited have you played around with chat gpt yet i haven't but my kids have so you know i kind of get to hear it from them it can program excel sheets like in a few seconds you tell it what you want it to do it, it's uh, pretty amazing i was on a call where it I guess Miro is a, a platform for collaboration and people were throwing ideas out onto this, you know, this website. And I just, you know, it was the mm -hmm. first time I've ever seen tech be, be presented. And I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe let's stay on tech at just a few more minutes. Like, how do you guys pay patients? Is it cash check? Uh Funny mention, we're just about to go into a payment vendor system institutionally. That was the other thing I really wanted to work on. Um, I don't like using cash. There's no, um, it's better for the patient, but it's really hard to track and it's really hard to verify in terms of uh, tax purposes. So our institution didn't like that. 
we were previously using check requests as you know even now we're still using check requests in terms of sending payments to patients not uh, after coordinator needs to put it in it needs to be checked by finance and then it gets signed by me and then it gets signed by like seven other people to wow. authorize requests being written that's a lot of work for just like paying a patient i mean i might say we just use cash and we tell our cpa at the end of the year we're not billing any we're not taxing any patient just we'll pay the we'll pay the tax on that um we just count it as income uh for us but yeah. i know there's solution like green fire and all that stuff we just you know you're right patients do prefer the cash but it's not easy it's not easy on the staff uh, or on the institution it might be easy on the coordinators but it's not easy on accounting and tracking and all that stuff and at a larger place like that i don't think i would be using cash either <laughs> i had cash like long time ago and i remember having a lockbox in my desk yeah, i have wow. that still to the, to this yeah. day what about um things like managing your platforms you know every study has like 11 platforms 12 i think the average is like 10 or 12 links to get to this portal link to get to that portal sometimes you don't even know all the portals in your study do you manage those I ask each the I ask each of the coordinators for each one of the studies that they're the lead on to make a, a you know I want to call it a go book. Okay. It's, if I don't show up to work tomorrow, can somebody else see this patient for me? Yeah, I have a. They're not sponsoring, but they're a cool little tech vendor. It's free. They're called the Versa Trial, and I've interviewed the CEO. Um, I can make an introduction, but it's free. It's a little tab in your bookmarks, uh, and it opens up as long as you're inputting the links when you create the study. It opens. It shows you, well, you know, what every link is for as soon as you open a new tab. So it's all there, and then they even have a password manager um, for your staff. It's pretty cool, and it's completely free. It's something we started using last year and it's worked really well. That's cool. What else do you have that you uh, like to use? <laughs> we use Creo for eSource eReg. You already have that taken care of. Viva. I've been using Viva. So they do sponsor the show. But I, I would have used this regardless because I really think Viva is the future of tech in our industry. I mean, they're the biggest vendor in the space. They understand that sites are important. Like if we can bring the sites together under the same tech platform, it's going to make the industry more efficient for, uh, in multiple ways, cost effective, um, operational efficiency. And they also understand that they shouldn't monetize the sites. Like it, it's free. So sites.viva.com, it's free e-reg for the sites. I don't have insider info, guys. I may be way off, but I understand their strategy enough to, they have to know that eSource and CTMS is next. And mm -hmm. they're probably going to do that. And if they do, they're probably going to offer that for free. Um, so I just like to have one foot in that platform because they're just so big and they dominate on the industry side. I mean, most trial master file, most sponsors use them. So it just makes sense to me. Like they're able to afford to wait it out and 
it's good to have a toe in that water. Well, I have like a whole foot in there now, <laughs> but Viva. Are you, are you using anything like, has your team ever used Exostar for password management or? No, because it's now it's, uh, I used to use Evernote personally for me. Yeah, mm -hmm. but that's not the safest thing. I mean, I'm literally just typing my passwords in this portal. Uh, Versatrial does it now for you with this password manager. So it's worked for us and it's integrated into the same system. Like, it's really cool. Um, you should get a demo with the founder or their team. Cool. Yeah, good idea. Good stuff. Michelle, always nice catching up. Maybe we'll do another one. We seem to be averaging one a year. Uh, maybe we'll... Oh, do you want to come to our conference? SOS Save Our Sites Conference 2024. Have you heard about it? Maybe. When is it? February 2nd, 2024. It's just a one-day thing. Tucson, Arizona. It's our first annual. We're going to eventually have multi-day conferences. But for 2024, it's our first one. We wanted to make sure... We're not taking on more than we can handle. It's a one-day event. Yeah, let's hear more about that. Okay, I'll send you send you the link so you could find more info about it. But would love to have you there because you know you're at a large system, but you operate like basically a independent site owner. We basically speak the same language, which is interesting in and of itself. So you'll meet a lot of other site directors there as well. Great. All right. Thank you so much, Michelle. Everyone go connect right now. Her LinkedIn is underneath the video and in the podcast. Like, subscribe, comment, share. Thank you, Michelle. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.